0: If we're used in international politics to thinking of states pursuing their, quote, national interests, then the first question we have to ask is, well, what are those national interests and how how does climate change or other environmental problems, how does that affect those national interests?
1: Hello, welcome to the Ecopolitics Podcast, Season 2, Global Ecopolitics. This is a podcast for university students tackling some of the big questions in the field of global environmental politics. I'm Ryan Katzrozine from the University of Ottawa, co-host of the show along with Dr. Peter Andre from Carleton University, although he will not be joining us for this episode. For today's episode, we're zeroing in on great power politics and the environment. Because so many environmental challenges transcend borders, we've seen efforts to govern unsustainability shift to the international arena, where scholars of international relations will remind us there's no centralized governing authority. So within this structure, we nevertheless have some remarkable efforts in multilateralism and cooperation, such as the United Nations and international coordinating bodies and institutions, And these platforms have enabled countless environmental agreements and helped to rally the international community along various sustainability causes, going back to the Stockholm Conference of 1972. So we have, for instance, the UNFCCC, or the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and better yet, the Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer, which was signed in 1987 and is frequently held up as one of the most successful multilateral environmental agreements. However, as with any effort in global politics, there's the specter of uneven power dynamics and competing interests between states and other powerful non-state actors, and how this might shape efforts to govern unsustainability. So we might ask, you know, how is the United States' status as a superpower throughout the post-war years? And in particular, as the world's sole hegemon after the the fall of the Soviet Union, how has this influenced environmental governance? And what about the rise of other powers, in particular the so-called BRICS? Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Is this changing the way that the world confronts unsustainability? And what do we do when many states, large and small, seem to have vested interests in supporting domestic industries like the fossil fuel sector or maybe other extractive sector industries that actively damage the environment and thus work against the very collaborative efforts to which they've signed on at the international level? So to help us unpack all of this, we have two guests, Dr. Yishan Sun, lecturer in international development at the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath, and Dr. Matt Patterson, who's a professor of international politics at the University of Manchester. So nice to have you both on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks, Ryan. It's nice to be uh, virtually back in Ottawa.
1: <laughs> okay, well, virtually we are. And uh, I'm going to start off by asking you a question, Matt. Um, You know, much of the the modern field of international relations has been organized around trying to understand uh, what it seems to refer to as great power politics. Um, So great powers, uh, we're told by realists uh, in IR theory, you know, seek to advance their interests and expand their power. But we have other theories of international relations, uh, like liberal institutionalism. Um, which which kind of sees the potential for this cooperation uh, between great powers and other powers uh, for you know these greater causes. Um, and when you add the environment to this equation, things become quite a bit more complicated because the environment again uh, transcends these national borders. So kind of curious to hear your general impression on how you see great power politics playing out in the sphere of global environment. Do you see states, seeking to maximize their interests and their power in spite of the environment? Or do you see the environment as a kind of a rallying force that has really brought states together to solve these types of mutual problems? Or maybe it's a little bit of both.
0: Thanks. Uh, It's definitely a little bit of both. I would say that one of the problems, and I might make my comments mostly about climate change, but at one level, you clearly have fairly standard, great power politics playing out. And on climate there, the story is really about the tepid, shall we say, or flip-flopping orientation of the US to dealing with climate change, right? So you've had, it's become a highly partisan issue in US domestic politics um, and increasingly so over time. Um, You actually have more climate deniers in the Senate than you did 25 years ago, which seems a bit weird. And so that, that flip-flopping by the United States has really driven lots of the negotiations on the, in the UNFCCC, um, in the UN system over climate. Um, and crudely speaking, when the Democrats have been in power, uh, in, in the White House specifically, um, the US has really tried to lead global negotiations. And when Republicans have been in office, In the White House, uh, they have tried to undermine global negotiations. That's rather oversimplified. But nevertheless, it has also meant that when the U.S. has been engaged, it's actually quite difficult for other countries to do very much because the U.S. is not interested in being engaged unless it can claim it's the leader, right? So actually, for example, in 2009, when there was the Copenhagen conference where people expected a new treaty to be agreed, the fact that Obama had just been elected and was really high, highly active and wanted to achieve lots of things on climate, as in other things, it actually got in the way, in a way, because uh, it wasn't willing to accept the design of a treaty except one that looked like one it had designed. And because it had not been involved in the implementation of the previous treaty, the Kyoto Protocol, it sort of wanted to completely redesign everything from scratch. And that's sort of ironic because it was also the case that the Kyoto Protocol, the, the central design features were done at the behest of the United States. So it's quite conventional in that regard in the sense that you've got this very specific situation that the, that the leading state will only lead by making everybody else do what it wants. Um, and actually it sort of almost made it easier when the U.S. got out of the way. But then you've got the paradox, which is that the U.S. is still about 15, 16% of global emissions. In 1997, when the Kyoto Protocol was treated, it was more like 22, 23% of global emissions. And so you sort of can't have an effective treaty without the United States. Um, but that has been a predominant dynamic. I think the other aspect of your question, though, which is really a different sort of a problem, which is that, you know, we are used in global politics to thinking that states, quote, pursue their interests, and that then there's sort of interaction between that, those interests in the international sphere determines what happens. Um, but the problem with climate change is what are states' interests, right? If you're an oil-producing state that is also spectacularly vulnerable to desertification, which is actually the case of quite a lot of oil-producing states, then what are your interests in relation to climate change? If you're a rapidly industrializing state like People's Republic of China, then uh, you have huge amounts of interest in using all your energy resources to do that, but large parts of your country might also be quite vulnerable to sea level rise or desertification or various other climate related impacts. And so the interests of states is, is much more difficult to discern.
1: Those are some great observations, Matt. I'm intrigued by the significance of the U.S.'s flip-flopping, as you say, in in shaping international environmental governance. Uh, Yixian, what are your reflections when you hear Matt on this?
2: This is a great question. And uh, I really... Like the points that uh, Matt just raised, I want to build on the last point that Matt said about what are the interests or uh, national interests of states. I think when we conceptualize international politics, we tend to assume the states uh, as unitary actors, but actually this is not the case because we look at what are the different actors uh, in different countries and what their interests in and how they their interests to play out and to shape national policy or domestic politics. And uh, I think in that regard, we have to think about different interest groups within different countries, especially in great powers or major economies, and how they can shape the policy of the countries uh, in international stages. This is something why more and more, Scholars of environmental policy try to look at the politics of decarbonization and the battle between different interest groups um, especially in great powers and the other thing I want to mention here is about um, kind of tensions between development and the environmental uh, concerns in this respect I'd like to highlight um, from uh, developing countries perspective so what are the priorities of these countries and as matt said yeah you have to think about what you can gain and lose from climate change and the puzzle that uh, many uh, emerging economies are facing is whether we should prioritize uh, development or economic development over environmental protection but now for some big countries like china i think it's they are really at a crossroads to see what their interest and so what they should do. And this is why there's a lot of discussion about whether emerging economies should take more responsibility at the international level and even take a leadership positions to tackle these environmental challenges across the world.
1: When people ask you about that, how do you address that question?
2: I think, this is a yeah very difficult questions and I think that for me it's really to trying to understand what are the strategies um that the powerful actors in these countries and what are the plans that they want to make for the future of their countries but also what are the interactions between these emerging economies and other great powers in international politics. So we need to think about that different countries in a complex web of interactions uh, in international politics. So this is why when we look at what happened in international climate uh, politics, uh, cooperation is always important, and especially the cooperation between great powers. For example, if we look at the success of Paris Agreement, we should think about what happened before Paris. And in that case, uh, the deal made between China and the U.S., the Obama and Xi uh, agreement on climate change was really a critical milestone for the success of the negotiations in Paris. Um, So I think the question is really about how the international societies can try to work together and also different actors, not the, the national policymakers, but also um, let's think about actors operating across national borders. They can shape the interest of policymakers and try to make cooperation
1: happen. So Matt, Yixian discussed the importance of both emerging economies, namely the BRICS, and also corporate actors. How do you think these two forces in particular have shaped climate governance?
0: I would see those as actually quite separate processes I mean they're obviously intertwined because everything is intertwined you know sort of ecological banality but um, if we take the BRICS question I think if you ask the question of what has changed within the UNFCCC over the 30 years since uh, negotiations started in fact 30 years ago this month just outside Washington DC in 1991 The single biggest change has been the rise of China in particular, but to a lesser extent, India, Brazil. Uh, Brazil has always been important, but because of the forests question. Um, So it's quite distinct. But China and India in particular, and in a regional context, South Africa as well. And there's a number of dynamics in there. So if you go back to 1991, 92, and I was doing my PhD on following those negotiations then, prior to the Rio convention in 1992, Chinese PRC emissions per capita were so low that if everybody in the world was emitting at Chinese levels, there would be no global warming. PRC emissions per capita now are about nine and nine and a half, I think. That means that they're actually now about 50% higher than the United Kingdom's for example. There are lots of European countries with lower per capita emissions of carbon dioxide than China. And so that's a radical reshaping of the landscape of who can claim to be have obligations to act to reduce their emissions. Now, there are other ways of, of thinking about that, one of which is that we should be thinking about historical emissions, not just this year's. And then, you know, a country like the UK looks way, way, way more important than it does if you just look at UK emissions today. And the other way is to think about whether you're measuring the emissions territorially in that country or you're measuring the consumption emissions of a country. That is to say, for example, if I buy a fridge um, in the UK that's built in South Korea or the PRC, then where do the emissions from the manufacturing of that fridge get accounted for? Maybe they should account for the UK rather than Korea or China. So there's things around the edges about how we measure the emissions, but it doesn't really matter too much how you slice those. The geography of where emissions come from has changed dramatically. That's the one single thing and that has changed really radically over the 30 years that climate has been on the agenda. And that means it's much, much harder for a country like the PRC to say um, we are no longer responsible. And at the same time, of course, China's interests have changed quite dramatically because they now aspire to, a sort of, to actually contest with the United States the global leadership. Right? So they've got political reasons but all to, to actually try and assert leadership. But on the other hand, they, they can't avoid responsibility in the ways that in 1992 they could just sit there and say, we are literally not part of the problem. And it was true then. It's no longer true. So that's, I think, what's the really important geopolitical change, um, the first part, and, and to do with the BRICS, and China is really the standout. But it applies to a lesser extent to India as well. On the corporate power question, that's not new, all right? That's always been an issue in climate politics. In fact, you can make a pretty strong case that the trajectory of global climate politics has still been determined more than anything by the power of oil interests and coal interests in blocking progress, sometimes aided by nation states who radically depend on those resources, like Saudi Arabia or, I'll say something controversial maybe for your colleagues, Canada. Those oil-oriented states have been significant blocks to progress on climate action in the formal negotiations. But that landscape of corporate power has changed quite dramatically as well and was changing quite early on, uh, even into the 1990s. So right at the beginning, you had a block called the Global Clock Climate Coalition, which was a coalition of corporations that was essentially oil, coal, car manufacturing, and so on, steel, heavy industry, um, that were really seeking to lobby within the climate negotiations and in lots of individual countries to try and block progress and prevent action on climate change. And quite quickly, then, you've got them being joined by other groups either promoting renewable energy. A notable one early on has been the insurance companies, of course, who are worried about the payout side of uh, paying out on increases in natural disasters, hurricanes, flooding, and so on. Um, And then during the 2000s, a a significant shift in the corporate landscape. Um, Never quite enough to really create a tipping point, but it's nevertheless now the case that if you come up with a climate policy proposal to reduce emissions quite dramatically, you will have many more companies and sectors in favour of that policy than you would have had 20 years ago, and it becomes rather easier to sell. And then one thing just to flag, uh, I think a really, really important shift that's happened in the last 10 years is that, or 15 maybe, that it was for a very long time uh, the case that car manufacturers and oil companies were really in lockstep. Right, and a really powerful block of corporations operate, all of it, whom are operate transnationally. Um, and now it's the case that there are basically the, the car manufacturers have realized that the oil companies have been taking them for a ride. Um, electric vehicles are going to be in at some point and they need to be well positioned for that transition. And so you've got a breakup of that block which has been quite powerful for a long period of time and is no longer anywhere near as powerful as it was. But nevertheless, the question, underpinning what you're saying, is that designing climate governance, whether at national or international level, needs to be done within the sort of capitalist circumstances that all states operate in a way that generates investment employment growth and so on and so the question has been a struggle over the trajectory of that economic growth
1: well you've brought in uh, capitalism here and we're going to come back to that in in a moment uh when i ask about you know how this fits within a sort of international political economy framework but i want to give you a chance to comment on what you were saying about the rise of China, in particular, uh, as a, a you know really important force in shaping climate governance, and so Yixian, you've you've you know closely studied the rise of China in the context of uh, global environmental governance. And you've written a book uh, about China's engagement, specifically in terms of transnational um, certification or sustainability certification. But I'm wondering if you can contextualize. For our listeners, the you know the PRC's approach to both of these realms, like how did how, you know what are the the driving interests within China that that you spoke of that are shaping their approach to climate governance and sustainability certification? How would you characterize their approach to these uh, realms of environmental governance?
2: To answer that question, let me try to address the links between your two questions that you initially asked, Matt. Uh, that uh, One is about the rise of BRICS, but especially China in this case, but also um, um, the corporate power in global environmental climate politics. I think here what I'd like to highlight is uh, the intersections between the corporate powers, but also um, the corporate powers or the economic interests of emerging economies. So here we have to think about um, the climate policy or environmental governance is not only trying to protect the nature but there is also an important economic aspect um, in that policy arena so for me when I start to study the china's uh, role in global environmental quali- politics or environmental governance my, my interest is about environmental issues but then, the more I studied, the more I realized that the economic interests really matter in this, in this case and what we have seen is not only for political reasons that China um, has tried to um, take a leadership positions, um, but especially in recent years uh, in the global arena, but also for economic reasons, um, especially uh, when we have uh, more and more Regulations uh, to protect the environment and protect the environment and um, climate change uh, with the decarbonization processes, we have seen uh, the development of new technologies. and in these processes, uh, emerging economies like China see a lot of uh, opportunities. Uh, for example, uh, when we see the rise of renewable energy industry. The main reason for China to develop a strong renewable energy industries is trying to build a strong economic sector and try to uh, lead uh, the economic growth for the future of the countries, but also at the global level to become a, a global uh, leader in that industry. And similarly, uh, in many other sectors as well, for example, when we see the rise of uh, electric vehicles in China, and the Chinese government has uh, implemented a very ambitious policies to promote EVs. So this is how we have seen uh, the rise of a strong EV sector in China, but also the Chinese uh, uh, car manufacturer. Uh, also, trying to expand their businesses around the globe. So, for me, while I studied this specific case of eco-certification or sustainability governance, uh, my main question is uh, to what extent China has engaged with these uh, governance systems or rules or standards that developed by non-Chinese or Western actors uh, to promote sustainable production and consumption. Here, really again, we see the environmental interest matter. And from, from originally, you would think that like because these rules are not created by the Chinese actors and, and but try to regulate uh, the production and consumption in China, the Chinese government would not have an interest in collaborating or promoting or accepting this governance system. But actually, what I have found uh, in my research is that a lot of actors in the Chinese government, they see the benefits f- of using these transnational rules or governance to promote certain sectors, not only within China, but also at the global level. And this is why I think they become more and more uh, proactively engaged with uh, a lot of uh, corporate social responsibility initiatives And this is what I found interesting, in a sense that not only at the intergovernmental level, but also at the transnational uh, business networks, the Chinese companies also become more proactive to embrace uh, these sustainability uh, norms or rules. And this is also where the potential or the promise is, I think, when we think about the obligation of emerging economies and these corporate actors in this part of the world or in these countries, are also interested in taking a more important position and be more proactive to uh, address these sustainability challenges.
1: That, that's really interesting, Yixian, and that leads me to something I wanted to ask you about, which is the you know China's international development sort of objectives, and you know you you have spoken, and Matt as well have spoken to this alignment or an apparent alignment of interest between you know economic objectives and also environmental objectives at the at the level of both you know the corporate sector, uh, but also within a certain uh, state context as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you can help us understand. Both China's, you know, Belt and Road Initiative as a force in shaping global sustainability, and whether or not, you know, how, how do you see it relating to questions of global environmental governance?
2: So let me start with uh, uh, what is Belt and Road Initiative. So Belt and Road Initiative is an international cooperation platform to create the new drivers of shared development through uh, different arenas, and I mean. Broadly speaking, we could say this is a broad framework to promote international cooperation um, led by China, uh, but also by working with many countries, other countries, or any, according to the Chinese government's discourse, is working with any um, partners who want to join this initiative. Um, the main areas include the policy coordination, but more importantly, that's infrastructure development, trade and trade and finance, but also people-to-people connectivities. This is a way that China tried to grow its international influence, but also try to use the capital that China, uh, that China has acquired in the past from its development to support development in other parts of the world and to connect Asia with Africa, Asia, Europe, but now also including Latin America. So basically, it's around the globe, everywhere. So, whenever you see the Chinese engagement or the uh, investment of Chinese companies that could be understood as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So there is no strict definition in a sense that it's all about, when we talk about China's overseas engagement or investment, that you could understand such engagement as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But the challenge of uh, the rise of this Belt and Road Initiative is that we have seen a massive amount of investment that China has made uh, in other parts of the global south, especially uh, in South Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Um, and Most of these investments have been used for infrastructure development, um, which have large implications for the environmental sustainability in the global south and also the trajectories of these countries in terms of their development especially whether they will go through towards a path of low-carbon economies or high-carbon economies i think this presents a huge challenges uh, for global environmental governance and then the way that china governs this belt and road initiative of the environmental and social safeguards that the Chinese stakeholders want to use in allocating finance but also uh, in implementing the projects are very important to the local environment of these in these recipient countries but also people there
1: thanks Yixan. that that's really interesting and i'm going to turn to Matt now and this might be a good opportunity to shift to a question about international political economy or IPE because of course China isn't the only uh, you know, great power that's investing tremendous sums of capital in, in projects in other parts of the world. And, you know, there, there's a, a question about how environmental initiatives and sustainability policy gets uh, embedded or not within these types of international investments. But just to, uh, to scale back a little bit, Matt, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what an international political economy or IPE approach has to offer to this discussion about climate change mitigation and great power politics that we might not uh, get by focusing primarily through either one of these you know, spheres, like either by looking at international economics or looking at international relations specifically?
0: Sure, I can never go at that. There isn't a single international political economy approach, obviously. The starting point, I would say, is that everywhere in the world, more or less, with the exception of Bhutan, is obsessed with economic growth. That is to say the measure of progress everywhere is the physical expansion of the economy. And that's something that's rather specific to the geopolitics of the last 200 years or so. The second point then is that that growth everywhere has been for the vast majority of the last 200 years, dependent fundamentally on fossil fuel resources. And pretty much the large majority of policymakers and corporate leaders actually still de facto assume that that's going to be the case for the foreseeable future. You know, a company like Shell um, is still doing 100-year planning ahead where only fairly recently has it even really started to accept that climate action is going to impact on its scenarios of oil sales um and so that fossil fuel dependent nature of growth is really really important to understand of course that also means then that the if you like you go back to the more conventional international relations accounts then the question of quotes national interests can be read through that um so with the extreme case of some states essentially you know they are uh their interests as states are fundamentally structured by fossil fuel resources of which oil is usually the most important of those if only because coal actually is quite widely dispersed around the world there are relatively few parts of the world that don't have any coal but oil is quite concentrated in specific parts of the world and of course the extreme versions of that are places like Saudi Arabia where it's it's an oil economy and more or less entirely so that's one way of thinking about it and then you can situate the strategies of different countries in relation to that, in relation to climate change, as a sort of in relation to their available fossil fuel resources and the sorts of economies that have been built up on the back of that. But it's also then really interesting to look at the variations, and you can see that there's actually quite a lot of, you know, ways in which those crude questions of resources don't determine fully what states do. Um, so you take a state like Norway, which is an oil state. Um, it's essentially, for Canadian audiences, it's it's Alberta basically in the European context. But compared to Alberta, with the uh, the, the partial exception of the racial, not government era, um, but only a partial exception, um, it's radically different in terms of how its oil-dependent economy has then interacted with its desires to do something about climate change. Over 50% of new car sales in Norway are electric vehicles, which would seem completely paradoxical from its interests as an oil-producing state. So you do have quite a lot of variation, even within this sort of general point that you would get from an IP sort of a perspective to say, that it's the embeddedness of the global economy in fossil fuel resources over the last 200 years that is the driving force for lots of the patterns we see about why which different countries take different types of strategies and broadly if you like it would bring back to sort of thinking about climate governance as you could think about it as crudely speaking a conflict between a carboniferous block a a block of countries whose economies are really dependent on coal and oil resources versus a, a group of countries, which we could call an ecological modernizing block or something, who are much less dependent on those fossil fuel resources or whose resources of those are going to run out quite soon. And so they need, feel the need to transition away with some anomaly countries like Norway fitting in. And in terms of what uh, Chan was saying about China, then you're in a really interesting situation where, on the one hand, there is still a huge amount of coal in China uh, that they could burn, but it's got its own contradictions, which are not really anything to do with climate policy, but they have lots of other reasons to reduce coal consumption because of air pollution problems and health issues to do with that within China. Um, But also, of course, they've generated a huge amount of inward investment to do with the renewable energy economy, solar in particular. Um, So you've got these sort of Competing interests around energy resources that I think you can see drive a lot of the patterns in global climate politics. Well,
1: Matt, that that gets me to a um, a specific question that I wanted to make sure I asked you. Uh, you you raised this question earlier about you know whether Canada is is an example of a, a state that might have some contradictions in terms of uh, competing interests between perhaps uh, an economic desire to extract fossil fuel resources and maybe environmental interests in terms of mitigating climate change and decarbonizing and also an economic interest therein. We have seen the rise of considerable amount of opposition towards pipeline projects. And I'm I'm curious about the argument that is often made by proponents of pipelines, which is that if you are successful in your opposition and we don't build this fossil fuel infrastructure, you will essentially see other countries like Russia or Saudi Arabia or Iran uh, fill a production void, You know, fill a, a, a demand for this uh, product, oil and gas. And I'm wondering what you make of this counter argument against uh, you know, fossil fuel activism.
0: I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that a lot depends on what you think the trajectory of oil demand is going to be. Um, and I would take a lot from uh, an energy economist at Oxford called Dieter Helm, who's an interesting guy because he is, he is an oil man, right? That's that's what he is. and He's always come to climate change from the point of view of oil. And he's... I think in the last 15 years or so changed his position quite dramatically. I mean he used to be somebody who was very bullish about the future of oil, thought peak oil was nonsense. Uh, still probably thinks that peak oil is nonsense actually, but um, was fairly bullish about how oil would deal with the climate futures. and he's now his position is much more bearish from an oil point of view on that. And it's not a peak oil argument, it's that, but it is saying that, you know, if you look at the dramatic decline in oil prices uh, over the last year and you look at last few years and you look at the sort of demand trajectories in lots and lots of countries, including rapidly industrialising countries like China, um, although oil demand is still going up in China, you now see, you know, for him, he says, like, we're in an era of low oil prices because we're in an era, era where a the US has dramatically ex, expanded its supply. and at the same time it's done so at the same time as there is essentially a slowdown or a stagnation of demand globally. and that's likely to stay in part because enough parts of the world are now engaged in transitions away from oil that in the transport sector, which is obviously where oil is predominantly used that means that you can't base an economic strategy on oils uh, in a way that's you would have assumed to be enough to do even 20 years ago. So I think that's a fairly persuasive argument about the future of oil demand. Um, you know, the, the point that Chan was saying about EVs, the last figures I saw EVs in China, I think it was that 6% of new cars in China are, are, are EVs. Um, Gave the gam- example of Norway, obviously a small country, but we're over fifty percent of new cars are EVs. Um, loads and loads of countries uh, are, you know, fairly dramatically increasing that. I saw figures for the UK during obviously the uh, the COVID-related crisis of the last year. Um, the demand for new cars in general declined quite dramatically, but the demand for EVs actually accelerated in the UK people were buying increasingly more uh, you know high percentage of the new cars being bought were um, uh, electric vehicles so that's a sort of scenario where basing your economy on oil uh, when you're a relatively high cost producer which Alberta oil is always going to be high cost and it was only ever really profitable when, when prices were high um, is a is just a mistaken economic strategy so I the ethical oil stuff you know, uh, it was always obviously a certain amount of um, PR nonsense to that anyway, stuff that was self-serving. Um, but I just can't see the Canadian economy sensibly being managed on the basis of a, a rebounding of oil demand in ways that uh, Alberta producers could take advantage of effectively. And so the pipelines make that more difficult because there's a certain amount of the costs that it would bring down uh, and make them slightly more competitive. But the demand is just not there, it seems to me, in the longer term. Um, and so that's already the scenario. And the, to the extent that lots of other countries are getting on the end of, end of the internal combustion engine sort of a bandwagon, which increasing numbers are doing, um, and some of the announcements uh, out of the new US government probably don't hinder that, um, although the US is way behind the curve as, as Canada is compared to many other countries. Um, but it doesn't, wouldn't take much to create those sorts of tipping points away from an oil-centred economy, it seems to me. Um, and the sorts of things that were mentioned about China, that those seem to me to be a way that even places where currently oil demand is increasing, um, that that may not last much more than the next 5, 10 years. Um, so I think that, that you know, the, the Canadian government, which has always been in this weird in-between position, where it always wants to present itself as progressive internationally, and, and yet the structure of its economy and the, the decentralized nature of the federation, meaning that provinces like Alberta have a disproportionate amount of capacity to block federal action or block nationwide action um, and limit it. Uh, has meant there's this massive gap between ambition and uh, the ability to realise that. But I think that'll be helped by the increasing realisation that even in Alberta, which of course the Notley government did recognise, that an oil-centred economy is not a long-term proposition anymore. Uh, And the sooner Canadian politicians of various stripes realise that, the easier it will be for Canada to sort of resolve that contradiction.
1: Well, thanks, Matt. That's uh, That helps to to answer that question. Um, one quick question for Yuxan before we close up, because I did promise Peter I would ask about this. You can, you've helped out with the Earth Negotiations Bulletin, and we thought this would be a, a helpful resource for our students to know about. Can you just quickly tell us about um, your involvement in that and what it is and how uh, kind of a resource it might offer for students studying environmental politics?
2: But I, I can say that Earth Negotiations Bulletin is a very good resources to understand international environmental politics, not only on climate change, but also across all environmental issues, um, because uh, this is a project to try to make uh, the negotiation processes more transparent. So it's part of a program at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, IISD, a Canadian nonprofit organization in this project. Every time there's a UN processes on environmental negotiations, um, the organizations send consultants, which is a global network of people who are interested in environmental issues. I think many of us are re- uh, environmental uh, politics or governance researchers, and we uh, are sent to negotiation rooms to track uh, the negotiation processes and take notes and also write the analysis after and about and meet each meeting so for students of international environmental politics that can help you to understand what's going on in the negotiation rooms and also um, to understand the dynamics um, within the rooms so often if you only look at the report we don't the reports don't mention the countries, so which countries said what. Whereas in the uh, Earth Negotiation Bulletin's EMB reports, uh, we actually uh, uh, allowed to mention the countries. And also, there there are more details in the EMB reports. And more importantly, uh, for each meeting, we do analysis, try to uh, take a broader perspective and also take into account the historical processes of uh, different discussions and try to analyze the dynamics in this meeting and also uh, predict what could happen in the future. And so I think uh, I would encourage everyone who uh, is interested in uh, environmental politics uh, to have a look. You can find resources uh, or meeting reports on any kinds of environmental issues. So not only on climate change, as I said. And for me, it was a great experience to work as a EMB writers, to be able to sit in the negotiation rooms, but also to observe the processes of interactions between... Uh, negotiators between these policymakers. I think what mm, I want to hear to link to a point that Matt mentioned earlier about the op, kind of obligations that uh, emerging economies like China um, feel these days and try to also take a leadership position. And in that sense, uh, from my own observations, I think this kind of uh, negotiation process is, is also a normalization process to uh, diffuse kind of international norms and responsibilities. Uh, and try to uh, influence policy makers in different countries. I think at the end, when you have to work together in the same room and uh, have some face-to-face interactions, I think you realize maybe there are some... uh, common goals between different countries and people really try to work together. And of course, these days we can't really have physical meetings, I think. So a lot of um, meetings, uh, subsidiary meetings uh, have been already moved online, but we still hope to have physical meetings, especially for uh, the conference of parties, the COPs, because this is why people think it matters to have physical interactions. And uh, of course, if you are a student of environmental politics, I think EMB also recruits regularly new writers. So you are uh, welcome to apply for it.
1: Well, that's a good point to end on. And uh, thank you for sharing that. So it's a tremendous resource. And I'm sure if you even just Google it, uh, Earth Negotiations Bulletin, you should be able to to track down uh, some of the uh, reports and newsletters or bulletins, whatever you want to call it, that uh, Yixian has just uh, shared with us. Well, thank you guys uh, both so much. We do have to leave it there, but uh, this has been a really enlightening discussion um, for me uh, and I'm sure for our listeners. Uh, you know, you've really helped us better understand that the nuanced and complex ways in which, um, you know, politics, both within and between great powers, is is shaping global environmental governance. So, Uh, let me thank you both uh, Dr. Matthew Patterson and Dr. Yixian Sun uh, for sharing your thoughts on this complicated topic. Um, So thank you once again. And a reminder uh, to everyone out there, the podcast is made available under a Creative Commons License 2.0 Canada, so please share it widely. Uh, We just ask that you provide appropriate attribution. Follow us on Twitter at EcopoliticsP, that's Ecopolitics with a capital P. and get in touch. Our website is ecopoliticspodcast.ca. Global Ecopolitics Podcast is produced by Nicole Bedford. Support with transcription and captioning is provided by Kika Mueller, and Adam Gibbard helps us with artistic design and digital support. See you all in the next episode. Stay tuned.